Our text this morning comes from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. Sticky pages here today. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. This is the word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions." As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Rephaim and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself, Lord. Make your goodness, your beauty, your kindness, your faithfulness, clear to us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Uh, R.C. Sproul has said repeatedly that if he was to be sent to prison or 
marooned on a desert island or something like that, and he could have only one book, of course, it would be the Bible. If he could only have one book of the Bible, usually he says, I think I would take the book of Romans. But if he could only have one chapter of the Bible, it would be Genesis 15. Now, when I first heard him say that, I thought it was very strange. This is a strange story after all. It opens up with the word of the Lord coming to Abram, who in a couple of chapters will be renamed Abraham by God, and that's a significant thing. We won't touch on it today. But God tells Abram right off, he says, fear not, Abram. Now, why in the world would God say that? Well, probably because Abram was afraid. And what was he afraid of? I think the very next verse tells us what Abram was afraid of. He says, what will you give me? I continue childless. That's the most important thing to me, God. The ESV says, I continue childless. The Hebrew could either be translated as, I live childless, or I shall die childless. Now, here's the thing. God had told Abram back home in Ur of the Chaldees, which is basically just Iraq, that he should go out of his own country, he should leave his father's house, he should travel to the land that God would show him, and God said to him right off the bat, Abram, I will make you a great nation. That's Genesis 12. In Genesis 13, Abram has now traveled the thousand or so miles, because you couldn't go straight across, you had to go up to Turkey and over across and then down through Syria and into Israel. It was called the Fertile Crescent. You had to go that way because there wasn't water the other way. You'd die. In Genesis 13, Abram is now in the Promised Land, and God sends him on a little walking tour. He sends him to walk the length and the breadth of the land to show him the scope of the promise. And then God says, I give this land to you and to your offspring forever, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth. And so Abram's like, okay. And so Abram waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits some more. And nothing is happening. No offspring. Now, Abram was no spring chicken when he started out. He left everything he had, and he came to this new place, and, and God promised this good land to him, but he doesn't ever get to own one square foot of it except the place where he buries his dead. He buys that from one of the tribes. And the land is filled with the ancient world's equivalent of the banditos and the hell's angels. He just had to rescue Lot, his nephew, in the story before this story. He had to rescue Lot and his family from some of them. And so things do not appear to be going well. So, of course, he's afraid. He's like, God, you, you told me that if I left, you'd give me a land, you'd make me a great nation, and, and you would bless me. That's one of the things he said in Genesis 12. And that through me, you would bless all the families of the earth. And I look around here, and I'm living next door to the hell's angels, and I don't own a square foot. I'm wandering around, and I got no children. And I've got no prospect of children. I'm going to have to adopt my servant and make him my heir so that when I die, my stuff passes on and my name passes on. 
And so things don't look like they're going well. He's afraid that God is going to fail him. He's afraid that God will not keep his promises, that God will forget him, that God will take away his promise because he did something wrong. There were many trickster gods among the ancients, and this God was pretty new to Abram. Maybe this God was a trickster. Maybe this God was a liar. Maybe this God was going to say to him, ha ha, I got you to walk all the way from Baghdad to Jerusalem for no reason. Psych. And when, he, when the promises of God were slow to appear, Abram was afraid. Just like you and I are afraid. Abram didn't see any path by which the promises of God could be fulfilled. He is by this time in his 80s. Now, the number of men who father a child in their 80s is vanishingly small. The number of women who bear a child in their 80s is zero. Now, I want to tell you something about the Bible. The Bible is a book of promises, and it's a book of patterns. Promises to appropriate, patterns to imitate. It tells us how God works in our lives through these promises and patterns. How often do you and I look at the circumstances surrounding God's promises and say, Lord, there is no way in the world that this promise that I find in the scriptures that applies to me, there's no way that this promise can be made real in my situation. The world just doesn't work in such a way that this promise could come true. And God says to you what he said to Abram, fear not, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. Look at the kindness of God in this answer. Abram was a man of great faith or he wouldn't have been asking the question from the location that he was asking the question. So he was no slouch. He left everything and walked away to a land that he didn't even know where it was. God said, I'm going to show it to you when you get there. And yet, where there is great faith, there may also be real fear. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. That's the mighty Apostle Paul. That's the guy who had seen the Lord Jesus and was raised up to the, the third heaven. That's the guy who wrote our Bible, our New Testament, or most of it. And he said, we were afraid. Sometimes God says, fear not, as a rebuke, because we should know better. But more often, I think he says it like a mother comforting her child on a stormy night. It's okay. You don't have to be afraid. I'm here. Everything's under control. Everything's okay. It says in, in Psalm 103 and verse 14 that God knows our frame. He remembers that we are only dust. And He is kind to the faltering and to the weak. He's not going to crush us under our burdens. He will care for us. Fear not. 
We're told in the scripture over and over again that God can make a way where there is no way apparent. He is a shield to protect us, and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Well, something interesting happens next. God has spoken to Abram repeatedly in this story, starting in Genesis chapter 12, as it has unfolded so far. But we never have any record of Abram speaking to God. He remained silent. He did what he was told, but he's been silent. And now, for whatever reason, Abram speaks. And he speaks out of the burden of his heart. What will you give me, Lord? What will you give me? For I continue childless, and my servant Eleazar of Damascus will be my heir. And God says, no, he won't. No, he won't. A son from your own body will be your heir. And God says, go outside, look at the sky, look at the, the beautiful, clear, desert air night sky. If you've ever been in the desert, away from the city lights, especially the high desert, and you look at the sky, it's amazing what you can see. It's amazing. That was one of my favorite things about South Dakota. You get away from town a little bit, and the, it's pretty high up. It's three, Sturgis was 3,000 feet above sea level, and, and the air is dry, and you get a, there's no light pollution. And you get out in the country, and you look up when the, when the sky is clear, and it, there's more stars than I ever knew existed. It's just beautiful. And he says, now count all those stars. Go ahead, I'll wait. Count all those stars if you can. That's how numerous your descendants will be. Now, of course, Abram had a lot of descendants, didn't he? He, he, had the, he was the, the father of the Jewish people, the offspring of Isaac. Uh, he was also the father of the Arabs. That's the offspring of Ishmael. And then Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that all who have the faith of Abraham are also children of Abraham. And what is the faith of Abraham? In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, it tells us what the faith of Abraham was. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And this is the very verse that Paul goes to in Romans 4 to show us that righteousness before God doesn't come from our works, doesn't come from keeping the law, doesn't come from any ceremonies, and it never did. It doesn't come from sacraments like circumcision or its equivalent in our day, baptism. We are justified, that is, we are counted righteous or reckoned righteous by God, declared righteous by God by faith alone. That we believe God in the free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is credited to us as righteousness. Now, there's a lot of wonderful Reformation-era theology that we could go into here, both Lutheran and Reformed, and it's all good stuff, but I'm, I'm going to resist the urge to go there today. I want to draw something else from the text for us today. You see, God makes a promise concerning a child, and Abram believes. And then God reiterates his promise about the possession of the land, and what does Abram do next? Abram doubts. God says, I'll give you a child. Abram believes. God says, I'll give you the land. Abram doubts. 
Genesis chapter 15 and verse 8. Oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Isn't it odd how selective our believing often is? How often we can believe the Lord for one thing and trust in His Word and trust in His promises and trust in His care and we're just fine, but then something else comes along and we freak all the way out. And it's got a promise to cover it, but we can't somehow grab a hold of it and make it real. Does that ever happen to you or is it only me? It happened to Abram. Notice the patience of God. Notice the kindness of God and what happens next. Because this is one of the strangest passages in the whole Bible. It's really hard to understand what's going on just from reading the text itself. You've got to have some background knowledge. So God tells Abram, take a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon, and these are slaughtered, they're cut in half, and the pieces are arranged opposite one another in a, in a row so that there's like a path between the pieces. And then Abram waits. And the buzzards come down and they try to have a snack. And there's some symbolic stuff going on there too. And Abram drives them away and evening comes and it's starting to get dark and Abram falls into a deep supernatural sleep. It's more like a trance. And then there's a a thick and a terrible darkness that falls upon him and God speaks. And God gives a fairly detailed prophecy about what's coming next for the descendants of Abraham, the captivity and the slavery of the Jews in Egypt, and their release eventually to come out with great possessions and take the land. And then the sun goes down, and Abram wakes up, and he looks, and there's a smoking fire pot and a burning torch just kind of hovering in the darkness. Now, what in the world is that? Well, think for a minute about how God manifested himself when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. There was a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Smoke and fire. Our God, it says in Hebrews, is a consuming fire. This is what's called a theophany. This is a manifestation of God's presence that we can understand and apprehend and see. And this torch and this fire pot pass between the pieces. What in the world is going on there? Well, in the ancient Near East, in the time of Abram, there was something called a suzerain treaty or a suzerain vassal treaty. Now, this treaty was a covenant. The word covenant in Hebrew is berit, and it literally means to cut, to cut. You didn't make a covenant, you cut a covenant. And here's how it worked. When the king of a powerful nation like Egypt or Assyria or Babylon came to the king of a less powerful nation, He would come with something like the mafia would come to business owners in Youngstown in years past. He would come with an offer you can't refuse. The powerful king was called the suzerain, and the weaker king was called the vassal. The weaker king, the vassal, 
knew that he did not have any real chance of defying the powerful king and getting away with it. So he was really in no position whatsoever to resist this powerful king. He had to do what the powerful king, the suzerain, wanted, or he was going to face a disastrous war and the destruction of his nation and his own death and the death of his family. So the suzerain would come to the vassal and he would tell him, you and I, we're going to make an agreement. You are going to do whatever I want you to do. And this is particularly important in your relations with other nations and especially other nations that are at enmity with me. And you're not going to talk to them. You're not going to make agreements with them. You're not going to support them. And in return for your obedience, I will let you continue to be king and run the affairs of your nation pretty much as you see fit. I'm going to want some money every year too, but I'm going to pretty much leave you alone as long as you behave yourself. And of course, the weaker king, the vassal, would say, okay, because he didn't have a choice. And then the suzerain and the vassal would seal the deal. Not with signatures on a piece of paper like we do today, no. They would take several animals and they would cut them in half and they would arrange them so that there was a pathway between the halves. And then the suzerain and the vassal would walk together between the halves while the terms of the covenant were read out loud. And in doing that, the vassal was saying, I swear to keep my promises to you, and if I fail, may I be cut in half like these animals were. And so what God is making with Abram is something like a suzerain vassal treaty. But I want you to notice something. The, the smoking fire pot or furnace, it could be translated as a furnace, and the burning torch were visible manifestations of God's presence. We said that. Now, think of how, no, we, don't, we already talked about that. I don't need to do that. So, so, so this theophany is happening, this visible manifestation of the invisible God. And the flaming torch and the smoking fire pot didn't move between the pieces with Abram as though God was the suzerain and Abram was the vassal and God was putting Abram under an oath of obedience. No. The fire pot and the torch moved between the pieces alone while Abram stood over at the side and watched. So what God is communicating here is this. Abram, if I fail to keep my promise to you, may I be cut into like these animals have been. If I fail, Abram, may I be destroyed. Can you see the astonishing condescension of God here? The creator makes a promise to his creature and the creature doubts the creator's promise. And rather than growing angry with the creature or feeling insulted by the creature, the creator puts himself under an oath 
that the creature can understand, an oath that says, if I fail to do what I promised that I would do, may I be destroyed. It boggles my mind. I can't believe that God would lower himself like this to reassure a doubting sinner who he purposed to save and bless. But he did. But it gets even better for you and for me. This isn't simply God pledging himself to Abram to fulfill his promises to Abram. Hebrews chapter 6 teaches us that this is the paradigm through which we must understand all of the promises that God has made to his people. If you've got your Bible, open to Hebrews chapter 6. It's kind of way towards the back of your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. We're kind of picking up in the middle of an argument here, but I think we can understand what's going on. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. You understand that when you're swearing to an oath or a vow to do something, what you're saying is this great being who is above us is a witness to this, and may he punish me if I fail to keep my oath, my vow. He will witness and he will watch, and I invite his judgment upon me if I fail to keep my covenant, my commitment? Well, there's nobody above God. And so God swears by himself. May I be judged if I fail to keep my commitment. Keep going. Mm. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Because they really believe that if they didn't do what they said they were going to do, that God would do to them something awful. So when you swore an oath in the ancient world by your God, <laughs> you didn't lie about it. It's like, all right, if that's how you're going to be, go ahead. All right, I believe you now, okay? So when God desired to show more convincingly the, to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All of the promises of God are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus. And God says, I will be destroyed if I let even one of my promises fall to the ground. And I cannot be destroyed. And I will not let my promises fall to the ground. I am able. I am willing. No one can stop me from doing what I purpose to do. 
and I will bring it about in good time, and that's money in the bank to you and I. So when you read your Bibles, and you come across a promise that God has made, and I haven't counted for myself, but I'm told that there are 30,000 promises in the Scriptures. First, make sure that you understand it. Many of the promises have a condition attached to them. Many do not, but there are many that do. And some of them are just unilateral. God just makes a promise to you. But think about, for instance, he will keep in perfect peace. Do you know the verse? What comes next? The one whose mind is stayed or fixed upon you because he trusts in you. So what do you got to do to have perfect peace? It's a condition, right? Fix your mind on the Lord Jesus. If you fix your mind on your worry, you're not going to have perfect peace. You fix your mind on God, God promises he will keep you in perfect peace. So some promises are conditional, but some are not. Some God just says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That one is a condition, actually. But when he says, no one can snatch you out of my hand, that's unconditional. No one can snatch you out of my hand. It's an unconditional promise. And when you understand that promise correctly, just believe it. Believe that promise and rest in it and live as though it is true. Think as though it is true. Speak as though it is true. Why? Because God has said, my child, bought with the precious shed blood of Jesus, may I be destroyed if I fail to keep any of my promises to you. God has pledged himself to this. And he cannot lie. And he cannot be wrong. And he cannot be too weak to accomplish what he purposes to accomplish. And he cannot be ignorant. The promises are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God.